Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. As we begin this morning, I have a question for you. What would you say if you knew today was your last day on earth? What is it that you feel you would want to pass on? Dominique Bowers, it's French, I don't know if I butchered that probably, but he was a Jesuit priest, he was an essayist, and he was a grammarian in France in the late 1600s. He actually died in 1702, and on his deathbed, he's recorded as saying this, I am about to, or I am going to die. Either expression is correct. Right to the very end, he wanted you to know that what matters is getting the grammar just right, but in this case, you have options. W.C. Fields was a comedian in the first half of the 1900s, and when asked why he was reading a Bible in his final moments, he said, I'm looking for loopholes. In 1994, Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of the band Nirvana, tragically took his life, but one of the last words he wanted to share was, it's better to burn out than to fade away. If you had the chance to know that your end is coming, what would you say? I, probably think you, I think you'd probably be really thoughtful, very intentional. You probably wouldn't waste your time on things that don't really matter. You'd only speak about what matters most. And this is what this new series that we're starting today is about, a series that we're calling What Matters in the End. It's a series walking through the second letter of Peter. This letter from Peter, you remember Peter, the disciple of Jesus, the one who was convinced that even if everybody else turned away from Jesus, he would be faithful and even die with Jesus. But when the time came, in that hour of need, instead Peter denied Jesus three times and then went away in his shame and his disillusionment. Now, on this past Easter, we looked at Jesus' resurrection and even more so his intentional restoration of Peter, where he grabbed Peter, took him aside for a personal conversation, and asked him three times, do you love me? Giving Peter the chance to repent, to turn back to Jesus one time for each of Peter's denials. And Peter does reaffirm his love for Jesus in this moment, even as Jesus is affirming his love for Peter. But it wasn't enough. Jesus didn't just want to forgive him. He wanted to restore purpose and meaning and calling to Peter's life. And so he told him three times, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. In other words, Jesus was calling Peter back to this purpose to love and serve people as Peter has been loved and served by Jesus. To represent Jesus' heart and care as a shepherd for his people. And that's how Peter would then spend the rest of his life as a leader in the church. And this letter is another expression of Peter's care for God's people. But this wasn't just an ordinary letter. Because 
Peter is well aware as he writes this letter that he is going to die soon. Matter of fact, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 of this letter, he says, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. I'm going to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of a body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. He knows that his time has come. So now how is Peter going to spend his last days? What will his final words be as he seeks to take care of Jesus' sheep? What matters most? That's what we're going to jump into today. And I'll invite you, if you'd like to follow along on the screens, you can as we jump into 2 Peter, beginning right at the beginning of chapter 1. And it says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that speaks really into all times and all places and all moments of our lives. May by your spirit, you bring your word to life for us, that we can hear and understand and respond. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Just two verses, that's all we're going to look at today. And this is really, it's a pretty customary opening to a letter in Peter's day. It identifies the author, it identifies the audience, and it has a brief greeting. Now, if you've read much of the New Testament, you know that this was a common format for letters in Peter's day. And if you have read some of these letters, you might be tempted to kind of read these first verses of these letters, kind of like we do a letter, dear so-and-so, I hope you're well, right? Like as if, yeah, 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 okay, those are just the niceties, right? We're supposed to say those things. Let's get to the real heart of the matter, But if you do that with these letters, you're missing something of significance and substance even in the openings as the authors begin to give you some insight as to what the themes are and the purposes of their writing. And it happens here with Peter. He's saying, he's identifying himself. This is Peter, the servant or actually the slave, probably more literally, of Jesus Christ, and not a coerced slavery. He's happy to identify himself that, hey, my whole life is about joyfully and obediently serving Jesus Christ. That's what what it's all about for me. But I'm not just a servant, I'm also an apostle, which meant one who's sent out with this good news of the message of Jesus, but it also comes, this message comes with the authority of one who has witnessed all that Jesus did in his life and his ministry. And so Peter could have come with that authority first, with that hammer. Hey, I'm an apostle, listen to me, do what I have to say, but instead he chooses to lead with humility, which doesn't that just fit the values of the kingdom of God? But his humility as a servant and his authority as an apostle are held together because they're both a reference to Jesus Christ, which really is what this letter is all about and really what matters in the end, Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what that means for us. It's it's what Peter's life up to this point has been all about. It's what's given Peter's life meaning. And he doesn't just give up on that meaning because he knows he's going to die. 
He could have just said, well, we gave it a good run. No, he continues to write even to the end. He continues to use every breath, every moment to serve and love others. And just in the beginning of this letter, it's pointing to the reality that no matter your age, young or old, there is always still value and meaning in your life in service to the king of the universe. You're never out to pasture. You've never done your time. There is still purpose and calling. There are ways for you to love and to bless and to serve others. Really, our limitations are really our creativity and our willingness. Our creativity to adapt to our abilities and to the situations over time, what we can and can't do, and our willingness to do it. When we're tired, when we feel like, man, we've done it, can't somebody else just do it? See, Peter embraces to the end the service of Jesus Christ. It's what gives his life meaning. It's what's worth living for, and in the end, it's what is worth dying for. He stays focused on feeding the sheep. Now, which sheep? He's identified himself. And he says, the letter is to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So this letter is not to any particular people in a particular place. It's to anyone who have the faith that's as precious as the faith Peter has. And so what is this faith? What is faith? I mean, it's a pretty common word, isn't it? You know, we talk about our faith. We have the faith. But what is faith really about? Watchman Nee was a a missionary and a Chinese church leader in the 20th century. And he says that faith is not about mental agreement or assent. He says faith and agreement are two different matters. Faith is living, while agreement is an exercise of the mind. Only faith will inherit all the things in the spiritual world. Faith is not just about agreeing to things, right? I believe, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe that Jesus died, I believe he rose again. It's not just like check, 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 yes, 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 I believe this, okay, good. It's not a list of things that we agree to, it's what causes us to live. It changes how we live. Yes, we need to know those things in order to have something that we believe in, but it's beyond just believing. It's also trusting in these realities so much that it affects every moment of our lives. That's what faith is really about. And if your faith is really only limited to what we do when we gather together on a weekend in this particular building and space, it's not the faith that Peter was writing about, and it's not the faith that Peter was living. Peter's probably writing this letter from prison, aware that his execution is imminent. But this is where faith really matters. In everyday, real life, that's where we live faith. And so this letter is to everyone who has heard, who has known, who's believed, and who's trusted. So what does it look like? I'll take another illustration from Watchman Nee, but I'm going to adapt it because this has been on my mind so much. My brother-in-law, Martin, is an amazing guy. And right now, right now, he's in the process of climbing Mount Everest. And he's, he's climbed the six other highest peaks on the six other continents. He's already done that. 
And he's not actually going to summit Everest until late May because it takes that long to acclimate and make sure that everything's good to go for the climb. And, and we can probably all agree that Everest is glorious and beautiful and awe-inspiring and magnificent, right? We know that. You may have seen pictures of it, heard stories about it. You may believe that. But we haven't received it by faith until it changes our life. See, Martin has faith that Everest is so glorious, so beautiful, that it's changed how he's been living for years as he's been looking ahead to this particular time. See, it's faith being lived out. It's in action because it's changed who he is. It's not just what he believes. It's now affecting every moment. When we have faith, it changes how we live. It changed how Peter lived. And this faith was so precious to him. Is your faith precious to you? Is it so valuable to you, worth protecting, worth investing in, worth growing and nurturing? Why is it so precious to Peter? I think it's precious to Peter because Peter knows it wasn't something that he could attain or achieve on his own. His faith wasn't something that he could go grab hold of or earn. He couldn't even really imagine faith apart from God giving it to him as a gift. Faith is received, he says, as a precious gift. A gift that came through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, both those terms are descriptions of Jesus in this case. God and Savior both apply to Jesus. It's not our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the places in the scripture that most clearly affirms the divinity of Jesus. And this is so important because Peter is saying faith comes from the righteousness that is seen, expressed, and displayed in our God and Savior, Jesus. Now, hang with me for a minute because this gets a little bit technical, but this reality is what changed Martin Luther's entire life and faith and what led to the explosion of the reformation of the entire church. This truth, when he realized that it's God's righteousness wasn't condemning him, but graciously being given to him. Because the righteousness of God is an attribute of God, right? It's a characteristic of God. It's his, his just, perfect, impartial character, his moral completion and perfection. He judges without playing favorites. He looks not just at the outward appearances, but he looks to the heart when he judges. He judges the secret places of all of our minds and our hearts and our souls. And this is what overwhelmed Luther, expecting that righteousness of God to condemn him. But what he realized is also what Peter's talking about, the righteousness of our Savior Jesus. Because Jesus reflects that same righteous character, his perfection, his justice, his moral goodness, all of those in Jesus' perfect life with his perfect record. And what did that perfect, just, righteous life, what did he deserve? What did Jesus deserve for that life? I mean, have you ever thought about it? Don't you think he should have, like, gotten parades Honor, glory, rewards of some kind? What did he get? What did Jesus' perfect, righteous life get in the end? A cross. Mockery. Ridicule. He was spit on. Beaten. 
Right? Those are the things that not a righteous life deserves, but an unrighteous, a scandalous, an evil, ungrateful, imperfect life deserves that. A life, frankly, like mine. Because my righteousness is not like the righteousness of God. Yeah, maybe like according to the worldly standards, we'd say, oh yeah, he's a righteous guy. Or we, we like to say, oh, he's a good guy. Or she's a, she's a good woman. And when we say that, what we're really doing is we're relativizing that assessment based on the worst people of all time. So we're really saying, hey, compared to Hitler, Robbie's a pretty good guy. Thank you, by the way. I'll take it. But that doesn't reflect the reality of my righteousness, my true righteousness. Compared to the perfect righteousness of God, I am unrighteous. Isaiah the prophet said, my righteousness is like filthy rags. And he was, he was living boldly, calling the people back to faithfulness to God. He was out there, he was living, and he was saying, hey, when I look at my own life, all this righteous stuff that I do is like filthy rags compared to God, the character of the truly righteous one. It's nothing. And he knew what our righteousness deserves. What does our, our righteousness deserve? Or maybe more accurately, our unrighteousness deserve. What Jesus got. But what are we offered? We're offered the reward that Jesus should have had. The reward of honor and glory, acceptance, forgiveness, eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus took our unrighteousness on himself so that we could receive the righteousness of God. No longer having to hold on to faith in ourselves, but faith in him, the object that has become worthy of our faith. That's why Peter is saying faith comes through the righteousness of Jesus. It's like a ship passing through a canal. We can imagine a canal functions to help bridge two bodies of water where there's not a natural waterway between the two. So a man-made canal is dug out so the ship can pass through. The righteousness of Jesus is the canal through which our faith can finally come because there is an object worthy of our faith. Amen. I see that when I look back on my life. Because I wasn't going to choose faith on my own. I wasn't going to choose God on my own. I look back and I see the patterns of choices and destruction and just self-destructiveness. And I realize God's hand on my life over and over again, turning me back, using this terrible decision as a way to point back to him, ultimately bringing me to a place where by his goodness I could receive his gift of faith. The faith in the object of Jesus, the one that's worthy, worth living by, and worth living for. John MacArthur writes this about faith as a gift. He says, the person who chokes or, or, and, or drowns and stops breathing, there's nothing he can do. If he ever breathes again, it will be because someone else starts him breathing. A person who is spiritually dead cannot even make a decision of faith unless God first breathes into him the breath of spiritual life. Breathing in that breath of spiritual life, breathing in, not because we were able to breathe upon our, uh, on our own, but because God gave us the gift of faith, breathing in the righteousness of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, I find it so encouraging that faith is a gift that it's not something that I had to muster or achieve because if faith is something I have to 
create or whip up within myself, then that means I have to do it and do it well. (laughs) And I know that many of us walk around with a sense of inadequacy of our faith. That our faith is weak. I've got questions. I've got doubts. I've got worries. I've got fears. I've got anxieties. I've got these things. And it causes us then to wonder, do I really even have faith? Do I really have a relationship with God? Is my faith going to be good enough? But when we receive faith as a gift, it's no longer about the strength of our belief or of our conviction or even our ability to live that out day in and day out. It's a gift to be received. And so it's not about the strength of my faith, it's about the object of my faith that matters. See, it's not my faith in the strength of a chair that gives a chair its strength, is it? Right? Whether or not a chair is going to hold me up when I sit down is really is irrelevant to how much I believe it's going to hold me up. It's really about the strength of the chair. It either is going to hold me up or it's not. My faith is about sit, being willing to trust enough to sit in it. But it didn't change the strength of the chair. See, because my faith in Jesus is often weak, but the righteousness of Jesus is strong. The object of my faith is strong. And so even my weak faith, my small faith, my mustard seed faith, my insignificant faith is enough. And it's a gift that I didn't have to create in the first place. A gift of faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is enough and strong enough to overcome all of my deficiencies and weakness. That's what matters most to Peter. Right from the beginning, to receive the gift of faith through the righteousness of Jesus. And we've only talked about the author and the audience of the letter. We haven't even gotten to the body yet. And he does get to the greeting, and we'll just finish with the greeting. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is Peter's fundamental desire for them, that they'll have grace and peace in increasing measure, in abundance, overflowing from their lives. And man, is that not still a longing and a desire that we have today for more grace, for more peace? I mean, there's so many I think ways that we try to grab at peace in our lives. So much energy and effort we share individually and collectively. But this goes back, this is one of the challenges of humanity, back to even Jeremiah's day from the passage we read earlier. Because he's telling the people, don't boast in wisdom or strength or riches. Man, aren't those common sources for, for grace and peace to us? Aren't those things that we look to? Man, wisdom, right? If I could just know what it's going to take to have peace in my life. So many books written, so many, you know, videos, so many uh, blogs, so many efforts to grab hold of peace that if I just meditate enough on this decaying log on the side of a mountain, then I'm going to finally experience peace. And that's just one of many possible examples, these efforts to grab hold of peace, which seems fleeting because we can't hold on to it and keep it. Certainly, it's not overflowing and abundant. And strength, man, if I just had the strength, I could rise up to the challenges. I wouldn't be so overwhelmed and beaten down by the problems and the concerns that seem to face us day in and day out. If I just had the strength, then I could assert some control over my life, over my circumstances. Maybe it's just over some people that I'd like to have some control over, but I'm just too weak. 
But if I had the strength, man, then I'd have peace. And riches, oh, if we had enough wealth, if I had enough money, that that could finally give me some peace. There's there's a study from Harvard that, that came out fairly recently that says, money can't buy you peace, can't buy you happiness, but it can reduce your stress level. It can reduce your stress level because maybe you have access to healthcare or other opportunities that those without any sort of money don't have access to. But there is not enough money in the world that can give you and buy for you an abiding grace and peace because there's not enough money that can tell you at your core that you're good enough. How much money would it take to tell you you have value, to tell you you have worth? And Jeremiah is saying, don't boast in those things that that we keep going after to try to grab hold of grace and peace. Instead, boast that you have the understanding to know God. And that's what Peter is talking about. Say, my desire is for you to have grace and peace. And that's going to come through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Do you want more grace and peace in your life? Then invest in your relationship with God. But we don't really have the time. We don't really have the focus. We don't really have the know-how. And I'm not just talking about knowledge in that like knowing things about God. Because there's lots of people who know a lot of things about God. But still have a coldness and a bitterness and a resentment and a hard-heartedness and an anxiousness and an angst that goes along with living every day. Satan himself knows a lot about Jesus. I wouldn't say that he exactly has a lot of grace and peace. I'm talking about a relational knowledge of God and Jesus. And that relationship has to be based on knowing things, doesn't it? I mean, think about any relationship you've had. How do you go from just meeting someone to then having a relationship of depth and significance where you're sharing things and supporting each other? Right? It, it develops over time. Where you disclose a little bit, they disclose a little bit. You're sharing information. But in the process of sharing information, you're also sharing each other's character, aren't you? You're learning their empathy, their compassion, their trustworthiness. You're learning whether or not they're patient, whether or not they are someone that you can have a relationship over time. And so we can do the same with Jesus to know about Jesus. To know and then know him. Share that life and information, know things about him, but also come to know his character, his patience, his love, his compassion for you, the lengths that he's gone for you. And as you deepen that relationship and you begin to disclose the worst of you to Jesus, and I think that's actually, you know, we start disclosing those secret things that we don't want anybody else to know. That, that's part of where our distress comes from. Because if somebody knew this about me, then man, they'd turn away from me. And when you bring that to Jesus and you find, hey, this is is really me. And you say, Jesus says, yeah, I know. That's why I came. That's why I died. I took your unrighteousness so I could give you mine. Grace and peace will come in increasing abundance as you know him more deeply. In the summer of 2011... My wife Abby and I were trying to figure out where God was calling us to go. We didn't know where that was going to be, and I had an eagerness, but I also had an anxiety and an uncertainty, and we went to Colorado to visit some friends at the time, and we went to, uh, to church with them to, to worship, and as we were walking out, I was carrying our daughter Ella, who was about four at the time, 
And she starts kind of freaking out. And, I, and I'm like, what's going on? And she says to me, I'm falling. She felt like she was going to tumble out of my arms onto the concrete that we were walking on. And so I asked her a question. I said, who's got you? A little sheepish, sheepishly, she says, Daddy. And have I ever let you fall? No. So she clings to my neck, holding on tight as we keep walking through the parking lot. And in that moment, God so clearly spoke to me. And he said, why are you freaking out? I don't know what's happening, God. I don't know where we're going to be. I I just have so much uncertainty. Who's got you? You do. Have I ever let you fall? No. See, the more and more we know God, the more and more he proves to be faithful, to be loving, to be forgiving, to be kind, to be gentle. And the more we know who he is, then we can believe and we can trust by faith. And the more our lives will overflow with grace and peace no matter the circumstance. Peter begins this letter with what matters most. Faith is a gift from the righteousness of Jesus so that we can experience grace and peace in abundance as we know him more and more and more. And this is just the beginning of what matters most in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of faith that we didn't attain, we didn't make happen, but that you've given to us. Thank you, it's not faith in ourselves, but it's faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone that gives us hope and that endures, that we are loved and accepted, that we are invited into your kingdom in a relationship with you today and every day forevermore. Lord, help us to nurture and grow that relationship, that the experience of grace and peace that comes from knowing you may overflow in our lives and that we would hold fast to you till the end. In Jesus' name, amen.